0: Welcome to Absent Father Podcast, a weekly conversation where we discuss the impacts in all areas of our life, of growing up with an absent father, how to overcome them, and the superpowers that we create along the way. I'm your host, Rodney Miller, executive coach, MBA, and son of an absent father. You can learn more about me and get in touch by visiting www.rodneymuller.com or by email at me at rodneymueller.com. We got greatness by choice. We got gravity by chance. Welcome to another episode of the Absent Father Podcast. Again, my name is Rodney Miller. I'm your host. Great to be with you. Today, we are going to be talking about something that I call. Uh the performance context. Um, we'll talk about what that means. That sounds like a weird word, but we'll talk about what that means. And we're also going to talk about uh this idea and kind of one of the questions I want you to ask yourself is are you an overachiever? Um and if you're like me, you would probably say no, I'm not an overachiever. Um, but the way I relate to what an overachiever is. Uh, and I say this, I think there's a lot of the people that I uh, work with in my in my uh, coaching practice is I work with people who are overachievers, which is code for whatever we do is never good enough. And I think that this experience of never enough is something that is pervasive for people who grew up with an absent or distant father. And I want to tell you a little bit of story about, you know, how this showed up in my own life, uh, which is funny a little bit and a little bit sad and a little bit great um, to talk about. Um, and then I want to talk about how, you know, why, why, what's the connection between this sense of never enough and the absent father and then finally kind of talk about this idea of a performance context. So hopefully I can remember that in order. Um, But the story I want to tell you is uh, the story of uh, the first marathon that I ran and my journey after. So uh, on October 22nd, 2000, uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois, at the start of the Chicago marathon. uh, After about Uh, six months of training to run a marathon. And I'm a day before my 19th birthday. So I'm 18 years old, uh, which is just crazy to think that I was running a marathon then, Uh, which sounds really exciting, sounds really healthy. Um, And the truth is that running is something that I would do uh, very often over the next eight, eight, eight to 10 years of my life. Um, And so I, I, I found this challenge of doing the marathon even at 18. I got really excited about it. I met some of the most extraordinary people that I I know today. Um and so I I run this marathon. And uh, you know, I trained really hard. Um I ran uh a time that of course wasn't quite as good as I wanted it to be, wasn't good enough. But I ran a 343 32. I just looked it up. And uh uh, that equates to about a 8 minute and 30 second uh, per mile pace for 26.2 miles. So I, I was running my first marathon. I was 18 years old. I was not like a cross-country runner or had ever really been into running. But I run my first marathon. I run 343. Um, and it's pretty cool. I accomplished my first marathon. It felt great. Um But it felt so good, I felt enough um, on that day, Uh, I decided I wanted to do another marathon. So I uh, signed up and did a marathon three months later in Disney World, January of uh, 2001. And I loved that one so much that I decided to sign up for the Nashville Marathon in Tennessee. So I ran that one in April of 2001. And by this time, I had become kind of obsessed with, you know, the next level of what a really good runner was, which was qualifying for Boston. So I decided to sign up for the Chicago Marathon again. Uh, and my goal was to run a three-hour and 10-minute marathon. Uh, so I trained like crazy through the summer. I ran the marathon, and I ran better. I ran a 3.33, uh, which is a little bit better pace, 10 minutes faster than my previous best. Uh, But still hadn't run the marathon, and I felt I was in such good shape, I thought, you know, maybe I should try three weeks later uh, and run the St. Louis marathon. That was close, so I'll try to run that one and qualify for Boston. And obviously, for anybody that's a runner, knows that it's probably not a good idea to run a marathon three weeks after you run a marathon. Uh, And so it didn't turn out well. I don't remember what I ran. I think I ended up running like a three-hours-and-50-minute marathon. Um, and I hurt my knee. And so essentially within the calendar year of 12 months, I had run five marathons all before I was uh, 20 years old. And what I what I think is really funny is I would go on to run four more marathons. So I have run a total of nine marathons and many hundreds of miles. Um, but one of the funniest things I think uh, – is that I had run all these marathons in community with a really great group of people. And uh, I decided that, you know, that must have been too easy because it was like, it was with people. And I thought, you know, I should try and run a marathon all by myself. And so uh, I decided that I was going to train by myself and that I was going to go by myself and I was going to run by myself. Uh, So I signed up for the Austin Marathon uh, a few years later, and I did that. And I didn't really think of this at the time, but now looking back on what was going on and what I was doing, um, I realized that I was chasing the feeling of being good enough. And one of the cool things about a marathon or the training for a marathon is that uh, you can't really do anything else. You essentially push your body to the limit. Um, So your body tells you it's enough by, you know, incredible cramps. Um, You know, I would get cramping so bad in the last moments of a marathon that when I would extend my leg forward with a stride, the quadricep would cramp. And when I would extend my leg backwards, the hamstring would cramp. And similarly, the same muscles when I would extend the foot forward, that muscle next to the shin, that would that would cramp. And then my calf would cramp. And I even got good at learning how to run while cramping. Um, so the beauty of it is that I got to feel good enough. And running really became a thing where I could feel good enough, you know, when I went out for a run, I could feel good enough for the day, Um, almost like a drug that helped me to feel good enough. So how this is related, and I think that we do this in so many things, you know, whether it's, you know, running a marathon, or it's how hard you're working. Um, So many people are running these days, so many people are working uh, more hours than ever before these days, and I don't think that's an accident. Um, But whatever we do, the experience is that we're never enough. And we start to chase the feeling of enough. So, you know, oh, that feeling that we get at the end of a 12 hour workday, or that feeling after that we get after we run 20 miles uh, before 9am. So essentially, we're chasing this feeling of being enough. And I want to hone in on that part and I want to talk about how that relates to growing up with an absent or distant father. So in my experience um, and in the traditional role of the father, the role of the father is uh, the source of affirmation. Uh, They're kind of the – again, in a traditional sense, the father uh, sets the boundaries for what's enough – oh, that's good enough, and what is not enough. And if you're someone like me where either, you know, your father was completely absent or you had an emotionally distant father, you're kind of left wondering uh, or without a sense of what enough is or not enough is. And when you have that experience, I think it, creates this uh, way of going through life that I would call a performance context. Um, what, it, what I mean by that is it's uh, a way that we uh, are driven through life. It's what drives our actions. It's the way that we see things. It's what we're motivated by. Um, it's what drives oftentimes our actions uh, or our performance. So the key piece that I, that I want to put in about this is that the key differentiator is um, when you say, uh, what is enough? And when I, when I think when we say what's enough, I think what we're really saying is, um, is what I've done worthy or valuable enough? And when we're asking ourselves, have we done enough? Are we enough? What we're really saying is, are we worthy? Are we lovable? Now, I would have you consider that there's two places that we could uh, answer that question. So one is, we could consider that, Uh, We are worthy, we are lovable because we exist, because we breathe. It's like when you look at a flower, you don't look at the flower and say, huh, flower, what did you do today? What did you achieve? You just look at the flower and admire its existence. Similarly, uh, I got to be painfully aware of this as a parent, as a new parent, Um, and in working with people that are parents. You know, when we watch children, uh, my daughter is uh, 16 months. She's amazing. And I don't pick her up from uh, the nanny at the end of the day or watch her on a Saturday and think to myself, what did you do today that was worthy or valuable uh, or worthy of love? I love her and I value her for who she is. Simply because she exists, she doesn't have to do anything to earn it. And the irony is that children, especially at her age, they do about three or four things. They eat, poop, sleep, and play. That's it. And the thing to notice is that if you only ate, slept, pooped and played, how would you feel about yourself? How would you relate to yourself that day? Chances are, if you're like me, uh, that doesn't really feel very good. And what we're picking up on is uh, we've made a a, a decision uh, based on where we came from that Our value, our worth, our lovability is based on what we do, not who we are. And of course, we don't walk around looking at other people in our life and say, you know, what did you do today? Well, you're unlovable and unworthy based on that. But we do that to ourselves every single day. And that was my obsession with running Now, granted, a very healthy, uh, well, mostly healthy way of treating my sense of not being enough uh, and getting my sense of worth and lovability from running. But the problem is that the best it ever gets here is the moment right after I run a marathon or right after I achieve something, So there's these moments uh, where I feel enough very briefly because I've either completely exhausted myself or I got lucky um, or I completed something that was long and hard. So those temporary moments with a lot of hard work, suffering, uh, robotic-like work, all to try and capture this sense of being lovable and worthy when, in truth, I am lovable and worthy for who I am. And I'll often get some pushback from people about that, but the thing that I would say is, if other people are lovable and worthy for who they are, if your child... Uh, Or a child that you see is lovable and worthy for who they are because they breathe If it's true for them, then it has to be true for you Unless you're some kind of alien or something Uh, If it's true for your dog, who really does nothing I mean, they just sleep all day But we love and value who they are and the being that they provide Then it must be true for us too But our work, especially for those of us that grew up with an absent or distant father, is to learn to see ourselves and love ourselves the way that other people, uh, the way that we love other people. So the the last thing that I want to say about uh, this performance context um, is I just want to share a few other examples of how it shows up in the world and um, how it shows up in daily life. So when we are practiced at informing our worthiness and our sense of enough through other people, um, we are in an endless and unwinnable game because there's no amount of uh, affirmation or praise or uh, feedback positively that can fill that hole for us. And so I didn't know that for so long, but I kept chasing it, whether it was, you know, in high school as a baseball player, you know, I was running as hard as I could and doing everything that I could possibly just hoping that, you know, my coach would notice and, and let me know that I was enough, uh, which of course turned into so much pressure on myself that I couldn't actually perform well. That's the irony of the performance context. Um, It continued on into the military um, where I was just performing as hard as I can. It worked pretty well in the military, but it was a cap on my leadership ultimately. Um, From performance, it's mostly about uh, other people seeing that I'm great versus leading people for them from my own spirit and purpose and, and vision. Uh, to one of the m- most interesting things I remember when I first got this uh, great job um, at uh, a company called Novo Nordisk. I was, it was uh, 2007, and I was making $70,000 a year. I was so excited to start this job. And I got my new manager, and uh, I was you know mid-20s, and my manager was like, Uh, late 50s from Michigan and I remember having this thought this is how the performance uh, works. I remember having this thought that wow um, I'm so glad that you know I I don't think that we really connect that well but at least he's kind of like a father figure and I'll that'll make me want to perform for him. And Now, thinking back on that, um, I realized that I was using this part of me to drive myself forward, to overachieve, and it was never enough, so I kept looking for the next thing to achieve. And the problem is that if you notice that you can't sustain this, um, or you can't, I think those are the two problems. You can't sustain it. So it's, it's inevitable when you're coming from this place of never enough and high intensity going hard, that there's going to be a crash. You know there's going to be a dramatic uptick, you're lots of energy, a lot of motivation, a lot of inspiration, to a complete downslide where you are can't do anything, won't do anything, won't feed yourself, don't want to get out of the house, uh, aren't motivated. So that's number one is it's just not sustainable over time because nobody can keep that intense pressure on themselves. It's kind of like having a drill sergeant outside of you 24 hours a day saying you're not doing good enough, you better do it better, you're not doing good enough, get your crap together, let's go. And eventually you have to, any normal human being would check out from that, would slow down. The second thing, and I think this is most important, is that um, when we're coming from this place, when it's never enough and we're just focused on the next achievement and doing better and doing more and filling all the time and answering all the emails and you know the next MBA and the next president of this and the next whatever, when we're coming from that place, we don't have any space or room to be connected and present with people. And most importantly for me, I realized that I didn't have the space to be connected and present with the people that I love. With my wife, um, I would not have been as a father, and it's still something that I practice is connection and presence. And at the heart of it is learning to relate to myself as worthy and valuable and lovable, not because of what I do, but because of I exist because I breathe and to see the value of me without connecting it to what I do. So my, I'll leave you with that. My challenge is is to, to let go of the idea that your love, your value, and your worth is determined by anyone other than you and that It doesn't matter what you do or how much money you make or any of that. Uh, What matters is discovering uh, your own essential greatness and seeing yourself and loving yourself the way that you see and love others' greatness. All right, that'll do it for today's episode. You've been listening to the Absent Father podcast with Rodney Miller. Please uh, continue to rate and review the podcast Helps to spread the message to people that need to hear the show, uh, and also I really appreciate the the people that reach out, let me know how it's moved you or touched you. Uh, it's truly inspiring and humbling to me. Uh, and lastly, if you'd like to get in touch or learn more about me, you can visit my website at www.rodneymueller.com, and also you can look at absentfatherproject.com. There's articles. Uh, Uh, that accompany a lot of the podcasts that we have been recording. Until next time.